Psalm 45, and we'll commence our reading there with the superscription. Hear once again the word of our God. To the chief musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashkil, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of over. It's far the reading of God's word, and indeed may he bless it to us this evening. Lord, when we come to this 45th psalm, there is something that the psalmist presumes about the Christ of whom he writes that is so radically contrary to how so many professing Christians think today. This Christ that's set before us in this text is not a passive Christ. The one who is king of kings and lord of lords, who is truly great David's greater son. The one who is Zion's only king and head. He is an active king. A prosperous king. We've seen that this is a Christ who is a speaking Christ. A riding Christ. A conquering Christ. And beloved, this is the Christ who is there. This is the living Christ. Christ, whom we encounter in this text. And if we're really to understand this text as we ought to, we need to begin here. Our Christ is not merely an idea. Our Christ is not beholden to any other's activities or wills. Our Christ is himself a conquering, a riding, a preaching Christ. Now, beloved, as we look at this psalm, we've seen how Christ's activity has been manifest in various ways. As I've already alluded to the fact, he is styled here as one whose lips pour forth grace. He speaks. He is one, as we saw before, who rides and rides prosperously. But now we come to this fifth verse. And we find really the manner in which Christ rides, or if you like, the manner in which Christ prospers. The words are before us here really in three lines. We find here 
that the king rides prosperously with a weapon. The text reads, thine arrows are sharp. They're sharp. The word there is very basic. It's the idea of cutting. It's elsewhere translated as pricking. The idea is is that these are piercing arrows. We find the object upon which they fall. And arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Uh, I would note here just uh, for the sake of of clarity uh, that the word fall there uh, that you find in that third line really is actually, it belongs to the arrows as they fall upon the hearts of the king's enemies. And so what is the effect? As these arrows fall on the enemies of the king, the people fall under him. Or that is, they are subdued unto him. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, of course, we are are encountering another symbol. And everything that we said about symbols before certainly holds true now. Uh, We are not at liberty simply to assign a meaning to these symbols uh, simply from our own um, particular inclinations or thoughts. These these symbols must be interpreted by the word of God itself. And so the question is, what are the arrows? Uh, What do they symbolize for us? In the scriptures, the arrows of God are are variously described for us. They're used symbolically in several ways. Uh, Obviously, one of the most basic ways is that they set before us the idea of destruction. Um, So you find that in Numbers 24. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. That's certainly a very straightforward way of looking at the text. But I also want you to notice that as the scriptures take this imagery of an especially a piercing arrow. It's not just the case that Scripture sees them primarily as an instrument of judgment. Take Psalm 38, for example. The psalmist there says, Thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. Mine iniquities are gone over mine head, as in heavy burden they are too heavy for me. Obviously, in Psalm 38, the psalmist is dealing very much with physical problems as well. But the greatest thing the psalmist is dealing with there is those internal pangs of conscience. He's dealing with, as it were, the Lord's arrows stuck in the heart, not just in the flesh with illness or other afflictions. Job finds the same thing. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. The terrors, note this, of God do set themselves in array against me. Here, according to Job, the terrors of God are those errors, are those arrows rather. They are the inward workings of God that are painful, that lay the man bare, that pierce, as it were, not the flesh, but really the heart. And beloved, as you look at what we've seen so far in Psalm 45, you remember the context. You remember that thus far the inspired writer has set before us Christ as he is a king who rides not on a chariot made of metal, not on some brave steed from Egypt. This king, as we saw even last Lord's Day evening, is one who rides prosperously by a word of grace, a word of meekness, a word of righteousness, a word of truth. And we saw, didn't we already, that the sword that this one holds is one that is itself the word of God. 
a glorious, majestic sword. Well, so then, friend, if we hold all of these themes together, it seems very much the case that the psalmist hasn't changed his theme at all. He is still dealing with Christ, not as he is a conquering king with the, with the flash of a blade and with a let lo- the letting loose of an arrow. He is a king who wields spiritually his sword. He is a king who has arrows in his quiver that pierce not just the flesh, but the very hearts of sinners. And so, friend, what do we find? Well, we find in Isaiah 49 that that's precisely how the prophet thinks about Christ. Note what he says there. He hath made my mouth, this is Christ speaking, he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and note this, and made me a polished shaft. That idea being that of the shaft of an arrow. In his quiver hath he hid me. You see, when Christ thinks about the sword, he thinks about the arrow. The two really stand together, symbolizing the same thing. And so as we look at this text, we could see that this 45th, sorry, the 45th Psalm in the 5th verse reads and paraphrase something like this. Thy word is sharp, and so people are brought under thee, as this word falls upon the hearts of thine enemies. A friend, the theme that's driven, derived rather from that text is very basic. It's just that Christ's word is a piercing word to sinners. Christ's word is piercing to sinners. And I want us to see that this evening under three headings, drawn really from the three lines of the text. First of all, the effect that these arrows have. Also, the enemies upon whom they fall. And then lastly, of course, we think of the end the purpose for which they fall upon these ones. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, you notice here that, as he says very pointedly, these are sharp arrows. They're piercing arrows. And the idea there is is not that they are just sharp in themselves, but they are sharp in their usage. These are arrows that, as it were, do not remain in the quiver. They are piercing. Arrows can be sharp in anyone's quiver, But unless they're put to use, they are not truly piercing. They have no pricking ability of of themselves, but not these arrows. These are effective, piercing instruments in the hand of Christ. And beloved, as you look at this text, of course, you need to keep in mind that this piercing, of course, has behind it the idea of pain. Even the idea that you had in Job that I just cited to you, these are, as it were, the terrors of God. I mean, you see this in Scripture, don't you? Of course, the text that I read to you already indicate as much, Psalm 38 included. But take even what you have in the preaching of Pentecost. It's a striking way the inspired historian presents to us that moment. You remember there, 3,000 souls, just weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, just weeks after these same ones cried, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children. 3,000 of those are gathered in Jerusalem, and here's how the Lord describes, here's how the Lord describes their experience under Peter's preaching. They were pricked, that is stabbed, at the heart. That conviction that you have in, in Acts 2, the inspired historian tells us, is as though their hearts were stabbed. 
as though their inmost being was genuinely flayed. That's the kind of piercing that we have in view here. It's a piercing that touches the soul. It's a sensible piercing. And beloved, what we learn then from this text is that Christ indeed does prick the hearts of men with his word. And certainly that stands to reason, doesn't it? It makes sense that Christ, in his use of this word, would indeed prick the hearts of sinners. Why? Well, because of course the word of God itself is described as being sharp. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, beloved, that being the description of God's word, that being how the word of God describes itself, that means then to feel the word of God aright. That means to be really sensitive under this word is to feel its pricking effect. My friend, as you look at this text, not only is it the case that these are sharp arrows in themselves, but as I've already told you, these are piercing arrows. That is, they're arrows that do not remain in the quiver. They're arrows that are genuinely employed by Christ. And so take Christ. Not only is the arrow itself pricking, but, but Christ intends it to be so. Uh, we, read, we read an example of this from the prophecy of Zechariah. You have the words there. I will pour the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Two things there. First of all, who is the one that pours upon them this spirit of grace and supplications? Well, of course, it is the Lord God himself. But what is the effect? It's a striking thing. Those who pierced Christ will be pierced with this spirit of mourning. It is the intention of the Lord God to take up this word and under his ministration to make it a word that produces mourning, a word that is genuinely piercing the hearts of sinners. It's not just, beloved, that this word is sharp in itself, but that in the hand of Christ, so to speak, it is supposed to produce the very effect that we find in Zechariah's prophecy. As grace goes with this word, the spirit of mourning certainly attends it. A friend, that means then that the soul that is under this word has to be under some kind of spiritual anesthesia to be under it and not to feel its sharpness. To be under it and not to feel its pricking effect. We can't miss that. Friend, the word of God says that this is a sharp word. The word of God tells us very pointedly that Christ has promised to wield this word. That sinners might mourn, might be broken under it. And that prompts a question, doesn't it? It's a question that faces myself as much as anyone else in the room. Do I find this word to have this effect on me? Beloved, when was the last time that we wept over our sins? When was the last time we came under the word of God 
When was the last time we felt it flay us? Leave us naked before the Lord. I want you to know, beloved, this text teaches us that the problem there is not the Word of God. If we don't feel this, if we don't feel this pricking power, it is only because we are hard. The second heading is the question of upon whom do these arrows fall? The text tells us pointedly it falls in the heart of the king's enemies. Arrows fall upon them. And the sense, of course, is that it falls at his command. These arrows cross great distance and they pierce even the hardest of armor. They penetrate even the most well well-equipped soldier, most protected combatant. Because you see here in the text, the arrows don't just fall upon the enemies. Our, our, our writer is far more careful than that. These arrows penetrate the heart, the inmost part of the man, that part that is most protected by the man. It penetrates them. Now what do we learn from that? Well, beloved, as we look at this text, we find here that the text really doesn't discriminate the kinds of enemies uh, that these arrows fall upon. And so the idea is, is that these enemies are of all sorts. All sorts of Christ's enemies may be pierced by this word. Even the most callous, the most callous to the least callous could be included in this text. Those who are furthest from the kingdom and those who are closest to it could be included in this text. And beloved, as we look at this text, I think it's important for me to tell you that asking the question, well, who are these enemies who know this piercing of the word of God? It's not a bypath. It's not a bypath. It's not a digression because the answer to this question, who are the ones that the psalmist has in view, is not so straightforward as so many believe today. Let me take it uh, just one piece at a time, so to speak, as, as we look at this, this phrase. Take examples from the Word of God of those who we know who were believers, who felt the pricking power of these arrows, who were once, as it were, enemies, but, but these arrows fell upon them and produced a saving change. Take, of course, David. Here, after his conversion, the arrows still fall. David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. The idea is, in the text, that David's heart was cut because he cut the skirt of the Lord's anointed. He took vengeance into his own hand. And the text tells us there that it's David's heart that smote him. His inmost being. That's the idea. Of course, take what you have when, when David responds to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, he explains for us a bit more what he means by that. He means that as he thinks about his sin against the Lord, the idea is that he cannot forget it. He has sinned so grievously against the God whom he loves, such that he says, my sin is ever before me. This is a man who feels the pricking power of God's word. Take another case. Take Josiah, 26 years old. When he heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes. The idea there is he is in mourning. 
He falls before God in humiliation. Just the reading of the law of God cuts, as it were, his inmost being and lays him prostrate before the Lord. Take Ezra. Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, the people wept very sore. You remember, this is also in the context of the preaching of God's word. This word goes out and it cuts the people to the heart. They're a weeping people when before they were a careless people. And see how deeply they weep. Or take Paul as we read him in Romans 7. The word that came to him was this, Thou shalt not covet, and see what kind of cutting it produced. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and note this, and I died. He describes about being even slow. He, he describes that the live actually slew him almost as a weapon might. This is the effect of God's word as it comes with its piercing power under the hand of Christ. Or take what you have in 2 Corinthians, a church that had so many things wrong with it. When the Spirit of God comes with his word, here is its effect. Ye sorrowed to repent, you sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. And note this, yea, what zeal. And yea, what revenge. This is a picture of, of, of souls cut by these arrows. But the question, of course, is, are these the only enemies that we have in view here? Well, but I would remind you that in this text, you do not find added to this fifth verse the idea that these enemies become subjects to this king. It doesn't say that these enemies are all of them destroyed utterly. It says in the most vague way possible that the arrows strike the heart. What do we make of that? Well, beloved, I think we should see in this what the scriptures teach, and that there is a kind of piercing work that is not saving. I want to give you just a few examples further. Take Saul. King Saul, he lifted up his voice and he wept. And why did he weep? He said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded the evil. He takes at least what is in conscience, but certainly what was in the revealed law of God, that cuts him to the heart, that shows him that David was more righteous than himself. It shows him that he was the sinner in this moment. And he weeps. Take another case. Take Ahab. One of the most wicked men that we have in the Old Testament. When Ahab heard these words from the prophet, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. It pierced him. But you remember, it did not change him. But see how deeply it cut him. This wicked man who was calloused in face of so many other things, lays prostrate here, but not savingly. Take Judas. I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. 
And the Pharisees return and say, what is that to us? See thou to that. Judas knows from the word of God, he who has betrayed innocent blood is himself worthy of death. Oh, and Judas knows too, doesn't he? He knows from the scriptures who this Christ is. And he mourns. He remains. He's pierced by the word, but he remains the son of perdition still. What do we make of this? What do we make of this kind of humiliation? This kind of piercing that is not saving, that's very different than the ones that we read at first. The likes of David, Ezra, Josiah, and others. Well, friend, I would encourage you to think about what Anthony Burgess writes. A Westminster divine. He says thus, he says, We may not say that those humiliations of Ahab and the Israelites and others like, when they cried out to God because of their sins, were by the mere power of their natural free will. But they were by the common operation of the Spirit of God. Those wounds of heart, which are inflicted upon many in the preaching of the word, flow from the Spirit of God. I want you to understand, beloved, that these things, these moments, even those, sa- those piercings that were not saving, the divine's right to a man, they are the work of God. But they belong to the common, not to the saving operations of God's Spirit. You can say genuinely they were pierced by Christ, but not savingly. Some are pierced to death that they might die to sin. Some are merely wounded and remain alive in their transgression. And beloved, I think perhaps a way of point of application for our generation, especially from this, is that if Ahabs are rare, if it's a rare thing to see a man fall, even under the common operations of God's Spirit today, how rare are those kinds of Davids and of Pauls that lead to a truly saving conversion? Beloved, it's a staggering thing that we are so calloused that so many in our generation are so far from mourning that even like the likes of Ahab, shame us. Is the Lord among us? The third point then this evening is from that third and final line. The text reads, whereby the people fall under thee. They are brought under the Lord. That does not necessarily mean they are subjects, nor, as we said already, does that mean that they are all absolutely destroyed. There's a wide latitude that's left in this language. As wide a latitude as there is in the idea of piercing. And so, friend, what we see in this text, even now, is that Christ subdues sinners in different ways under his word. I think the way that we often think, of course, is that way, that subduction that takes place, of course, that we read of in Romans 8. Where, where God in his grace can say to believers, he have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That spirit of bondage, by the way, is a reference to the spirit of God. Uh, perhaps that's something that we've lost today. But the spirit of God comes to souls sometimes. 
as a spirit of bondage, laying, as it were, open the law of God, and as we read before through his common operations, even doing that piercing work. But he says to believers, you have not received that spirit anymore, but the spirit of adoption. And so you see the end for which that spirit of bondage had been sent. You see its work in Romans 7. That spirit, of, that spirit of bondage was to lead by God's grace and only by that sovereign grace to what you have Paul's experience there, where he's brought savingly to Christ. And beloved, every believer, in one way or another, true believer knows that transition. Um, even if they don't know it by experience to the point where they could date it, they certainly know. They certainly know that the Lord God leads them from humiliation to Jesus Christ. They know that transition at least. But what of those, as we read before, the likes of Saul, Ahab, the likes of Judas, and and others who, who had that piercing work, but were not brought savingly to Christ? What was the end in view there? Well, but I think Thomas Hooker very helpfully puts this in front of us. He says, if God have a purpose to civilize a man, he will lay his sorrow as a fetter upon him. God, as it were, only rips the skin a little. The man will then begin to pray in his family, hear sermons, and take up some good behavior. And thus, while he take up a quiet civil course and stays here a while, it at last comes to nothing saving. I think an illustration along these lines is very clear. And in fact, it's derived directly from the Lord's interaction with Ahab. Ahab goes softly from now on. Ahab, this once bold sinner, now by God's piercing him, though not in a saving way, nevertheless makes him go softly in ways he didn't go before. Judas, a man who betrayed innocent blood, is made his own a witness against himself, his own, as it were, judge, all to testify to the righteousness of Christ. Even the one who betrayed him confesses under this piercing work that Christ's blood was innocent blood. Sometimes the Lord pierces to make men civil. Beloved, I would say this to you this evening. This is perhaps one of the least contemplated aspects of the work of God's Spirit. You and I know those testimonies well. A man, a woman, engaged in great iniquity, all of a sudden comes under conviction of sin. And then under that conviction, they put away those very particular sins that were so heinous. And they say that was a conversion. That was a saving change. Beloved, our text before us this evening and all the texts that I've cited before us do not say necessarily that's the case. There are works of God's Spirit that, make a man, that subdue a man, subdue a woman, but are not saving. Now why do I illustrate this? Friend, because all of these things fall under the piercing work of the Spirit of God. All of these things belong to that cutting work that the arrows of God perform upon a soul. Now, as we look at this text, the question obviously is what kind of humiliation do we know? 
What kind of piercing do we know? I suppose the first question is, do we know this piercing? Do we know this piercing work of God's word? Do we know what it is to be laid low before the Lord? But even beyond that, if we're to be distinguished from the likes of Ahab and Judas and Saul and others, the next question is, how does that piercing work lead us? And to where does that piercing work lead us? Does it lead us to despair? That's where it led Judas. Or does it lead us to pride? Does it lead us to do the work of the Pharisee? To cry that we are more righteous simply because we felt some piercing work? Does it maybe lead us to the covenant of works? Now that to assuage conscience, so to speak, we take up obedience and hope to pacify conscience primarily by performing the works of the law. Well, that all of those all of those ends lead to hell. The only way that a piercing work is shown to be a saving work is if it leads to Christ. And really to Christ. To go from the piercing of Christ's arrows to the balm of Gilead that he offers. That's the only way we know that that humiliation that we know is saving. And beloved, if you're delighted if you're delighted that his arrows would pierce you, if you're delighted that the Lord God would take up his word and even long that he would take up his word to expose your sin to yourself and and to lead you into greater repentance and mourning, that's certainly, certainly then, beloved, a sign that these things have driven you to Christ. If you, with David, cry that the Lord would search you and know you, to, search, to seek out that wicked way within you. To, to allow this arrow to pierce and to make you one who really is humble before the Lord and laments sin. Oh, beloved, that is, of course, a sign that these arrows have fallen upon you savingly. You despise the sin. And you long for more and more of the sin to be cut away from you. And so, beloved, if you do know that work, rest assured that that will only continue. He who began that work will continue. You who long for greater humility, you who long to lament more for sin, beloved, in the covenant of grace itself, it is promised you shall know it. You shall know more of that. But I would exhort you, beloved, as we close, to remember this, that it's not a little cutting not a little piercing that the text has in view. The kind of cutting and the kind of piercing is that which goes directly to the heart. Not a little will do. And so, friend, pray. Seek. Meditate. Plead that these things will be more known among us. Beloved, we must. We must know this work more. We must. And the only one who can send his arrows with this power is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it be that this sword, these arrows cut among us for our good and for his glory. 
that we may be described as those who are truly subdued to Christ. Amen.